morning, church family. What a delight to be with you, and uh, praise God for the rain, right? Even though you had to struggle with your umbrella or whatever, and uh, it's great to have you here. And for those of you who have been with us for this whole series in Revelation, congratulations, you made it to the end, man, a gold star or something for you. Actually, as we discovered last week, there's something way better than a gold star, right? We have this fantastic plan of God for us described for you in Revelation chapter 21 and the first part of Revelation 22. Would you open your Bible? And we're going to get into the last of our series in the book of Revelation, Revelation 22. If you don't have a Bible, there's some provided for you. Please stick it on your phone so you can carry it around with you. God's word is always with you, you know. You can look at it throughout the day for God's counsel. I would encourage you strongly to do that. Revelation 22. Now, imagine the greatest possible outcome for your future. And if you didn't come last week or if you haven't looked at it, it's Revelation, what is described for us in Revelation 21, God's great design for your future, the people that have called him Lord, people who have given their life to Jesus and experienced the forgiveness and the cleansing and the health that's there and the great future he has designed. And this is the the word of God to us. We're starting in Revelation 22, verse 1, and we'll be working through. Um, So the picture in Revelation 21 is what's on the outside, right? That amazing thing that God has designed for your future on the outside of where you will be. Revelation 22 gives us an inside peek, what's going on inside, and it begins this way. Verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So at the heart of this great city that God has designed, remember, it's staggering size and beauty. He's given us a peek inside, and there's this river, which is nothing like, you know, the Ganges or the Mississippi or the Nile with all the pollution and muck and stuff you see in those rivers. But it's this crystal clear river. I remember um, Sue and I traveling when uh, we were young and we got to go to Switzerland. Don't know if you've ever been there. It's really remarkable beauty. And, and we went to this place called Interlaken that's got this glacier melt river going through it. It's spectacular. And I, I remember thinking this, that, you know, that, that little river, well, it's not it's a little tiny thing they've got going around the, the Matterhorn at Disneyland. And you see, it and you're like, that's a weird color of water. I've never seen that color in a river. But that's what it looks like, actually, in real life, in Interlock. And there's this beautiful glacier melt water that's going on. And I thought, wow, but this water, this stream actually is even more spectacular because it's crystal clear. And of all the pictures that we have in Revelation, there's a lot of them. Typically, you see in those pictures, as you read through it, that there's something literal, physical going on, Right? And so we think that this is a literal physical river that's right there, but it's also loaded with meaning and symbolism. There's a lot of metaphor throughout the book of Revelation to get us thinking and wondering about God's crazy, mysterious, great plan for us. And here in this river, I think this is another one of those deeper, profound things that's happening because listen to Jesus' words, his own words in John chapter 7, where he says this, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone who is felt dissatisfied and thirsty, of course, he's speaking to something inside of us, not a physical, literal thirst. But if anyone here has, has ever really been thirsty and unsatisfied inside in your soul, long for something better, greater, deeper, more meaningful, 
come to me because I, I have that for you. I want to satisfy who you are, to bring fulfillment to you, to your work, to your school, to your place of living, to your home, to your family. If anyone's thirsty, let them come. And of course, that word, that invitation that Jesus gives is repeated in Revelation often. And here at the end of things in Revelation 22, we'll hear it repeated for us often. God's still calling, inviting people to enjoy satisfaction in him. So if anyone thirsts, let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, that's Jesus speaking. Whoever puts their faith or trust in me. As scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Ooh, same phrase, right? That's in 22, Revelation 22, is this phrase that Jesus is speaking of. Now, this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him, trust in Jesus, were to receive. So they hadn't yet received it because that happens when? If you know your Bible, in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God gets poured out to people, so they had not yet received it. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it's saying this, that Jesus had not yet gone to the cross and died for you, for your sin, for your brokenness, for your separation from God, and then risen from the dead, and then been glorified, gone to the right hand of God the Father. So the story had yet been told, but Jesus is saying, Okay, okay, so here's the preview of what's going to happen in Revelation 22. You ready for this? And he tells the story of anybody who's been thirsty and longing in their heart. And then when that happens, when you trust in me, you're going to be given rivers of water of life. Now, the picture is in Revelation 22 that it, it flows out of the throne of God. It's this river of life, which is a symbol also, a physical thing that's happening in the city, but also the symbol reminder for us that life pours out of God and... It's intended to pour out of Tim as he goes to work this week. Because the Spirit of God was given to you who trust in Jesus, not so that you could damn it up, I could hold it inside, but so that it would pour out, leak out, flood out on people around you, on your family that you see at Christmas time, on your friends and neighbors. The Spirit of God is designed to pour out God's grace and love, pouring out on people through you this week. That's the design of God and this river of life that's in Revelation 22 is a metaphor for that. So the Old Testament itself had pointed to this. Prophets used the picture of a river as a powerful expression of of God's provision and his richness, his overflowing and his peace. That's in Isaiah chapter 48 and Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 47. The psalmist himself said in Psalm 46, these words, verses 4 and 5, there is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. So the psalmist, get this, this is great beauty of God's word, all these centuries before is speaking of what's going to happen in Revelation chapter 22. There's going to be this river, we're told, whose streams shall make glad the city of God because life, as God gives it, is intended to bring us joy now and eternally. The holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. Isn't that a great word to us? That's, that's a really fantastic word. Verse 2, Revelation 22, through the middle of the street of the city. That's where the, the river was flowing. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So people are provided for year-round. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. Now, here's what's so good about the story that God has written from the very beginning of God's word to this. He's bringing it all to fruition. What does that tree remind you of? Yeah, the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, before man crashed and burned and did the stupidest thing possible and imaginable, violated God and all his will and desires, was disobedient, and then suffered under the fall of their separation and the curse that brought forth out of that disobedience that man had. So at the very beginning was this tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and now God is going to make all things new. That's the story of Revelation, God making all things new for you, including you and your brokenness. And so there's this tree of life. And seeing that tree once again reminds us that God has this business that he has. It's the restoration business, making all that's sinful and polluted and corrupted and decaying new. And so the the tree of life is there right in the middle reminding us and then there's a phrase, descriptive phrase about this tree, that it's for the healing or the health of the nations. That word therapeian in the original is directly transliterated from the Greek, and it means healing or health giving. So if you are a doctor in the house today, I've got good news for you. It'll be a day where your profession is no longer needed. Wouldn't it be great if every person that came to you this coming week walked into your office and said, I'm good. And you could just pray with them and thank God because they're healed. They're healthy. Remember Revelation 21 says, there's no longer there any pain or suffering because evil has been conquered and all its effects on us has been lifted. So there is a time, a place where we will no longer need Kaiser or any other medical group because God has been the healer and he's got this tree as a symbol of his provision for us and his healing to us. Verse three, no longer where there'll be anything accursed or where we will be literally in the original language under the curse, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it. God will make his dwelling there and his servants will worship him in the new heaven and a new earth that's described for us at the end of Revelation, the curse will be completely finished. Now, the curse it's speaking of there is the curse given in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the story of history of man, right? And what happened was when men and women violated God and rebelled against him in their sin, God brought a curse for that sin as a result And part of that curse that you see in Genesis chapter 3 is that we will live in sorrow, that we sorrow in our lives, that we'll suffer because of the consequences, that there will be pain in childbirth and friction in relationships, and our work will often be hard and futile. Not that you've ever experienced that, right? You always have joy at work. And And most of all, the consequences of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin, Paul says, is, is death. And that's the result of the curse. But here, the curse is lifted. Even in the millennium described for us in Revelation chapter 20, the thousand-year reign of Christ, although much of the effects of that 
will be mitigated because of the perfect rule of Jesus, they will still suffer in the millennial time under the cursed. Isaiah 65 tells us it's possible for sinners to be accursed there even then. But in the new heaven and new earth, all those things are done away with. I don't know about you, but I love Christmas songs. Um, A lot of them. One of my favorite is Joy to the World. Isaac Watts wrote that. And in the second verse, he wrote this. No more let sin and sorrow. Do you know it? Grow, grow. Nor thorns. You can sing along. Infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, CJ, God's blessing is going to defeat all that curse, all the frustration, the struggle of our lives. It's going to extend to all of it. How sweet is that, right? It's far better than even knowing that God has this great future and this great designed, architecturally amazing city, but that the curse is now no more found ever. Any part of it, I won't struggle with that pain or with the effects of evil. God has this great design in store for us, and we will have a future to worship him to delight, to find our great delight in him. And then verse four, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. At last, we'll truly have this ability to know God for who he is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great statement about love at the end. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Like John, Brian, face-to-face with God. You'll know him. He knows you thoroughly and fully. Have you ever wondered? Have you ever thought about this? You you felt insecure in your relationship with God? Anybody here ever experienced that? Just so you're cool with this, I think everybody in the room has. Like everyone's felt moments of doubt or wondering or insecurity. Have you ever wondered whether you actually have done enough to please God or if there's some hidden corner of your life that you've been trying to hold on to? It's it's junk, it's sin, and would God would hold that against you or maybe even that corner of your life you've given over to God, a thought or a habit. But God, could God really truly forgive you completely? And you struggle with your identity or feelings about relationship with God and, and this statement that he makes is a statement addressing that. It's this interesting thing that he says. His name shall be on their foreheads. Now that might seem weird to you. A little strange. Really? I've got his name on my forehead for eternity? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? But it's a great statement about that, that I'm his child. That I belong to God himself and he's rescued me. And it's a reminder every time I look at myself that I'm his, I'm totally his, and I, I can be fully secure in that and confident in who I am. We were thinking about um, giving all those people who have worked through Revelation with us a little prize. And I thought, I would mention this to my staff, and they said, that's the stupidest idea. I thought, hey, how about those little temporary tattoos? Put a name on everybody's forehead. 
Okay, so there's a story in Revelation, if you haven't been with us, that's like for those people who didn't get the mark of the beast, you know, all that stuff, so it's kind of weird. But here, at the end of things, we're told that we are marked as his children for all time, and and we can have confidence in that. It's not going to be weird or different, you know, but there's really beauty and confidence I can have in how God has marked me. Charles Spurgeon has said, this will be the greatest glory of heaven to know God, to know Jesus more intimately and wonderfully than we ever could on earth. It's the chief blessing of heaven, the cream of heaven, the heaven of heavens, that the saints shall there see Jesus, to know him and be fully known. Verse five, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Reminded of the words of Jesus, I am the light of the world. Like all of Jesus' statements when he was here on earth, they had this in mind, bigger things, things that we couldn't really fully know and appreciate. And now John is kind of unraveling the story that he really is not just a, a flashlight, but he is actually the light of all into eternity. There's, there's no place, no corner of darkness or fear, apprehension or evil. That God lights the place. And we won't have a need for electricity or even the sun itself because God will, will be their light. And then it says this curious phrase, and they will reign forever and ever. That all God's people who have trusted him by faith, that, that we will have the significant role to reign. Where and over whom? It's one of those mysteries in the Bible, right? We don't want to add because we don't have all the details here. We just know this because God has promised it that we will reign. It's a significant part of our future job description, and we're left in a little bit of mystery, which is good, right? There's, there are things that we can look forward to that we don't know, but we can know with confidence why. Verse 6 says, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy. You can depend on them. It's God's faithful. And they're true. Even it seems wild. I mean, he just wrote this description in Revelation 21 and 22 that seems mind-bending. And then he says, this, this, is, this whole description you've just heard is trustworthy, and it's, it's true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, all those prophetic writings writing about it, he's the Lord, the master of them, the God of them, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This great description he's just written about in Revelation 21 through 22. It has spurred all these questions, this wondering, this speculation, this amazement, right, in us about it. And here's this statement that we can bank on this. This is what God has in store beyond what you can fully comprehend or appreciate in this moment. It's better than that, what God has planned. And as we spoke of last week, all kinds of different worldviews and systems and religions have things in store, what they think the future's like, but God's future for us is so much better than that. And we can actually know it to be true because God's word never fails. So we know that this is what he has happening. But why? Why, why does God open the book in Revelation and give us a taste of what the future's going to be like? Just to satisfy a little curiosity we might have or so we might win some trivia contest about what's going to happen in the future? 
Why does God open the book and tell people here in the first century and us today what his plan for is? I believe the answer is found in God's word repeatedly here in Revelation. It's so that we would be hopeful for the future and obedient in the present. That those people in the first century, they were struggling with persecution. Many of you have faced struggles in your own faith. And God's message to you, why he's given you such great hope, is so that you would have that hope. Not just a wish, but you would have strong confidence for what God has in store for us. And that it would propel you to obey him right now. When you wonder whether it's worth following Jesus this week, remember the future he has in store for you. That's far beyond what any other thing, any other gift you could possibly get. So be obedient. Follow him. This book, it began with encouragement to us to read and to heed. And there would be blessing. Now we're at the end of it, Revelation 22. The promise is still the same. Be obedient to it and experience blessing in your life. Don't miss out. Take great courage living for Jesus. Verse 8, I, John... And the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, I don't believe that um, John has blown it again. If you know the story in Revelation, this happened already in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 is that event where, where John gets overwhelmed by what's happening. He falls down and worships, and he's worshiping the wrong thing. He's worshiping an angel and not worshiping God. So John is, I think, referring back to what happened in chapter 19, when he heard and saw, and he was confused and uncertain and overwhelmed, and he fell down and worshiped at the angel's feet. Wrong reaction. And the angel tells him, no, that's, all that stuff is propelled, propelling you to worship God, to lead you to his worship and praise. And so John here, I think, in a really great statement at the end of this book, identifies his mistake one more time and in his refreshing candor shares it with us, this huge life lesson, which is this, it's so easy to worship lesser things. Isn't it? It's just so easy to worship lesser things. Things that seem even amazing to us, but pull our attention away from worshiping what we should worship, God alone. That's it. There are all kinds of distractions around Christmas time, aren't there? Christmas is about Christ. We worship him. We lift him up. He's preeminent. He's, He's the one that we worship. And in our conversations with our neighbors and with our family, with our friends, don't grow timid. Don't grow distracted. We worship him. Let people know. This is the heart. This is the reason why why we're celebrating here. So while it's easy to worship lesser things, we're called to worship God alone. And that's why John writes this reminder of the like his most embarrassing moment, right? That he writes down here again in Revelation 22, so that we might learn from his mistake. Worship God alone. And he said to me, verse 10. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Let people do what they're continuing to do, but don't seal up what 
what you're supposed to write here, John. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Now, put yourself in John's sandals for just a second. John is an older man at this point, at the end of his life, really. And he's lived this amazing, adventurous life. Like first he was just, you know, blue-collar guy doing the fishing thing. Jesus approaches him, and then he gets to walk with Jesus, like firsthand walk with God's son and, and see all the amazing events that are described for, for us in John's own gospel. And, and then he sees the death of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. He experiences Jesus firsthand and the ascension. And then he experiences all these people coming to faith in Christ through his own words. He would have never expected this. Now he's an older man. He's been persecuted for his faith. He's been sent to exile in Patmos. And he gets this word from God that is crazy, right? Would you actually write this down, have the guts to write what God revealed here in the book of Revelation? Especially because a lot of it could be very inflammatory toward the Roman government. It could be seen as treasonous, and John could lose his very life if he actually not just writes it down, but as he sends it out. And so he's encouraged here to send it out, to have the guts to speak out. And that's, I think, a really strong encouragement. And so John does this. But it's not just a risk against the government of Rome. Can you imagine if you wrote a book like this, what other believers would think of you? I think you're a whack job, right? They think you're like, okay, what happened to you? So John has to, in even writing this book and giving it out, has to give up his own reputation. Because it's so important that for the church, for them to you know, to be steadfast and persevere in the thick of their persecution, for John to be faithful to the call of God in his life. And that's why it's so significant for us to be faithful to the call of God in our lives, even when it seems like a risk with our friendships and with the people at work and school. What really matters is that John is faithful to pass it on and to tell people that Jesus is coming back soon and be accountable before him. That message, too, is a tough one, right? So throughout the book of Revelation, we're told that Jesus is coming back soon. Really? Does it seem that soon? Am I the only one here that thinks like over a couple thousand years is like soon? What kind of timetable does God operate on? Not mine. You knew that, right? You knew that was coming. God does not operate on my own timetable. Like, I have this perspective of my life that maybe I will live to be 70 or 80 or 90, perhaps. And that's what I see. That's, that's the scope of my life that I can understand. I've got kids that know that I'm ancient now, that I'm really old, right? I think, wow, how could they even get in their brains that someone could be like past 50? That just seems crazy and ancient to them. God's viewpoint is really different, right? We know this, that he sees from eternity past and eternity future, that my life is just a little dot and that microscopic little dot in terms of time. God doesn't view time in the same way, but in his perfect time, he will come and he wants people to live in a spirit of anticipation. Uh, that's what's so great about Christmas, right? You're looking forward to time with family and friends and food and presents and all the stuff that goes around it. But our sense of anticipation is, should be even greater about the return of Christ, like far greater than that. What am I going to get? Some cheesy present that's going to last for another couple of years and then I won't even remember it? 
But what do I have in Christ? The treasures of Christ into eternity. That's, that's the story here of how I should have been anticipating this and longing for the coming of God. And then he says in verse 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the alphabet and the end of the alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning from beyond what I can imagine in time and the end all into eternity. And blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs. Now, don't worry if you're a dog owner here. Okay, that's just a metaphoric statement. And the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside of God's plan, actually in hell itself, we're told in scripture here, are all those people. And by the way, that description describes you. It describes me. Except for the grace of God. The only reason I get this future, you get the promise of God's future, is if you had your, what? Your robes washed. That's what it says right here. Now that's a picture described for us in Revelation chapter 7 of those saints who walked through the struggle of um, the tribulation And it says, and they wash their robes in the blood of Christ. Now that is a weird picture, right? It's a consistent biblical picture that talks about the power of God and what he did on the cross is shedding his blood for you and for me. And that when I place my faith in him, literally he cleanses me of all the unrighteousness, of all the junk. And when I confess before him that I have sinned and I've broken his heart and broken his word and I've been disobedient, That's my story. It's your story, by the way. Stop denying it. And then I turn to him and place my confidence in him. Then he washes me. He cleanses me of all that unrighteous junk. And that's what it's talking about here. And all the people that have taken a bath, that have received the cleansing that only Christ's blood can give you, they're the ones that get the city, that get this great future in store for us by the one who is the Alpha and Omega, who's promised it, and by faith in Jesus and his great work on the cross, we're given inalienable rights to citizenship in future and the new heaven and new earth and to life in the city of God. Verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. She said, I'm... I've given you this message so that for the encouragement of the church, for those people who are following Jesus, so they won't fall away. And even in this, if it goes difficult and hard and they're experiencing persecution, that they'll stay faithful. I am the root. Now he, he moves to the Old Testament picture of the names for Jesus. He's the root and the descendant of David. Then he gives us this phrase, a descriptive phrase, the bright morning star, the one that illuminates all things. The spirit and the bride say, come. It's an invitation. Let the one who hears, that's all of us who've heard the message of salvation. We should say, come. We're part of those inviters to other people. That's why it's so important that in this season, you capture it and you invite people to relationship with Jesus. Use all the things that we're doing around here to do that. Use your home as you invite people, your conversations that you have to invite people into the city of God, to invite people into relationship with Jesus. 
That's the point. And I love that he keeps giving invitation. Even at the very end of the Bible, at the end of this, we hear these invitations. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There's no entry fee. This is the message, right? This is the heart of the gospel. This is so free for you. You understand all the things that are written about in Revelation 21 and 22, the astounding picture that God gives us of our riches in heaven. It's all free without price because Jesus already paid that price for us. And I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. This is verse 18. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That's really sobering. Okay, all this great news so far. And now this really sobering word that grabbed your attention. Don't add to the words of the prophecy of this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, speaking of this book, Revelation, specifically the greater text of God's word for us, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. But John gives this really strong warning. Don't change a thing. Don't add to this. There'll be temptations, obviously, for us to kind of make things politically correct or you know, tone down the word and soften it up or the call of Jesus and his requirements for our life or how to follow him. Don't do that. Don't add a word and don't take away any of the words of this book. It's all meant for people. It's God's word. Take a moment and examine the junk that's currently going on in our world today. Like the greatest tragedies, struggles. Why is that happening? The fundamental reason I believe that it's happening is, is because people have added to or subtracted from God's word to us. If, if people actually were faithful to this God's word, would we be struggling through the, the horrors of terrorism in our world today? Now that exists because they thought that it would be, some thought that it would be a good idea to add to the canon of scripture and reinterpret it and say, oh, this is the latest, greatest word of God. We, we get ourselves in huge trouble when we take away or add to it. Even as I've been thinking about this message series throughout the book of Revelation, it's really sobering, right? You want to make sure you don't add anything, right, James, when we're talking through it. And those of you who lead BSF and study groups in Revelation, you know, you're, you're sobered by this. It's okay, okay? Just hold it humbly. Teach it, do your best to teach it truthfully. And know that we can't add anything or subtract anything But what we're really called to do is to believe it, to place our confidence here in God's word and to trust it actually with your life and to obey it all. That's the point of the statement, to believe it and to trust it, obey it. You don't need more stuff. You don't need less stuff. This is the word of God for you and your call, his call on your life. And then he ends with this great phrase, he who testifies to these things says, That's Jesus. Surely I'm coming soon. Another reminder, even in the middle of our questioning, are you really coming, Jesus? Yes, actually, again, I'm going to remind you because you're insecure in this and you always wonder and you keep questioning it. So he says it again. By the way, Andrew, I'm coming soon. Live your life that way, would you please? Wow. Mike, I'm coming soon. 
this week. Rob, now even as you're driving around, just be anticipating this any moment. Be hoping for it. Be looking forward to it. I love how Robert Mounts describes the ending of Revelation. He says, at the very close of the book is the confession that the answers to the problems of life do not lie in man's ability to create a better world. Think about all the plans of man for future and how distinctively different God's plan is for us. But in the return of the one whose sovereign power controls the course of human affairs. That's the heart of it. God, who controls all of human affairs, one day will unfold this amazing plan for us. And we want to make sure that we're his. Dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, we place our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was crucified, risen, and coming again one day soon we're praying for that and in the middle of it as we wait may the grace of the lord jesus christ be with you all of you let me pray please father um and we're just we're encouraged by what you have in store for us i know lord even in this room there are people who are still wrestling trying to figure out a relationship with you and i pray that they would come to a place where they would not rely on their own stuff or energy. They would understand that you were an inviting God who keeps saying to them, come. It's even why you're here this morning. So you would come to relationship with him. You turn from your own junk, your own sin and separation from God and you would embrace a relationship with him and just invite him, confess your sin before him, embrace him and follow him. Just tell them that in a personal conversation. And when you do, you will become a child of God. You will have eternity with the Lord God of rich, full blessing. And for those of us who have taken that step, help us to do a great job in this season telling others to come to enjoy what God has in store for them. Use us, Lord by the power of your spirit that flows out of the throne and flows out of our life. Invite people in a relationship, Lord, through us. And as this church does that, I pray that your grace would rest in a major way on them. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. For more information on Bridges Community Church, please check out our website at www.bridgescc.org.